Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scaries Stock Talk podcast, where I'm joined by Darren Tuttle of Tuttle Ventures. He brings a wealth of knowledge, and we get into his background. We talk about uh, you know, himself, his upbringing, a little bit of his experience in the investing world, uh, his collegiate athlete experience, both of him and I were both Division One athletes. He played football and I ran track, uh, you know, because D1 athlete over here. So we get into the athletic mindset, a little bit of his influence, kind of how he found investing. Then we dive into the current market conditions, his philosophy around investing, how he finds various investments and all things investing. Uh, he brings a wealth of knowledge and he definitely, definitely brings a hammer and shares everything that he can uh, to help investors and help people kind of get started and navigate these muddy and volatile waters. So be sure to tune in. And the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast is brought to you by Financial Stock Data. Check out financialstockdata.com and use the promo code GCI, as in Go Cubs Indigo, and then uh, you will get one month free. I use financial stock data to analyze all these stocks uh, that I do for my newsletter at greencandleinvestments.substack.com, and it's a great tool where you can analyze and get various metrics. So be sure to go to financialstockdata.com and enter promo code GCI to get one month free of their upgraded package. Now, let's get into the show. But first, a little disclaimer, as always, everything you hear in this podcast is not financial advice, um, both uh, Darren and myself share our opinions on stocks and any equities or stocks that we name in this podcast are strictly for entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as financial advice. So please, please, please do your own due diligence. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. And like I said, not financial advice, not financial advice, not financial advice. Now it's time to get in the show. All right. I am back with another edition of the uh, Sunday, go ahead and check it out and be sure to let them know that I sent you. Now, uh, let's time to get into the show. I got a very, very special guest here. He actually joined me in our Twitter spaces, uh, I think a week ago. Um, and his name is Darren Tuttle. Darren, how are you doing today? Brandon, how's it going? Thanks for having me on here. I'm doing great. Uh, yeah. So uh, you're out in sunny California and I'm here in uh, sunny Florida. So it seems like we got kind of the best of both worlds on uh, opposite sides of the country, huh? Uh-oh, we got a little delay or can you hear me? Right. We're coast to coast right now. Yeah, exactly. Coast to coast, coast to coast. All right. So, uh, Darren, for those in the audience that might not necessarily know who you are or, or what you do, why don't you give me a, a little bit of background on um, not only yourself, but your experience? Yeah, no, sir. So uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, I'm Darren Tuttle. I'm the chief investment officer uh, and founder of Tuttle Ventures. Uh, I am in portfolio manager and and stumbled into this role uh, after graduating uh, with a business management degree from Brigham Young University 
uh, joining uh, the likes of Goldman Sachs and Vanguard, and uh, and then shifting into a portfolio management role uh, as a fiduciary registered investment advisor in Arizona, and then making the move out to California here about four years ago. Nice. That's awesome. So you've stayed kind of on the uh, west coast of the or west side of the United States, which is awesome. Um, so let's bring it back a little bit. Uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit pre-show and I've heard you and a couple other podcast interviews. Um, but uh, you were a collegiate athlete. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. I was like I was like Rudy. If you ever seen that movie, Rudy, I was uh, I walked on. Uh, played uh, played college football. I was a tight end, so I was I could catch and I could block a little bit. There you go. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I m- mentioned it before, and for those that have been following me, kind of probably know that I, I ran track at the University of Memphis. So we both kind of have that uh, that connection there. Uh, you know, it takes a, a special kind of mindset and dedication to get to the Division One level, and uh, yeah, so good on you for that. So. Um, I guess uh, bringing it into to sports and bringing it in. So how do you think that, uh, you know, that that journey uh, being a college athlete and, uh, you know, training years on years on years and, and just dedicating a lot of time and effort um, to it? Uh, how do you think that uh, that's affected you today and kind of like help, you know, shape your mindset to where you are? You know, I think there's a lot of similarities or crossovers with playing collegiate sports and and then investing or financing, uh, you know, your future. And essentially, it just comes down to uh, dedication, practice, self-discipline, right? So with uh, being a college athlete, you have to be self-disciplined in a very highly competitive environment, right? And with investing, it's, it's the same way. Uh, you know, you can't, uh, you know, rein yourself in self-discipline-wise by you know, working harder on your body, but rather it's more of, you know, working harder with your mind, your process, uh, you know, having that long-term focus. So there's just a ton of crossover that happens between the two. Yeah, I think a lot of people underestimate the, uh, you know, overall mindset and uh, just like mental toughness that it takes to, to do all these sports. A lot of these people see, you know, just these freak athletes go out there on the field and, uh, you know, just go and excel. And at the end of the day, you just kind of have to just watch them go because they're just athletically built a lot better than, you know, the average person. And they're built more so for that sport than the everyday person. But, um, you know, I, at least for myself, yeah, I felt always felt like, you know, I always had to work that extra step and, and, uh, you know, be a little bit more mentally tough and, and kind of, uh, go through the ringer that way to kind of help me catch up to maybe those guys that are a little bit more athletically gifted. And I don't want to speak for you, but um, yeah. Did you kind of, uh, I, I guess along those lines feel that way as well? Oh no, absolutely. I mean, I played with a lot of uh, collegiate athletes that are now still playing in the NFL. Right. And when, uh, you know, I initially came on, I was a freshman, but I was looking at, you know, seniors. And so there was like, what, a, a four year gap there. Uh, you know, and, and thousands of hours of practice in between. And so, you know, I think having that long-term perspective, right, makes all the difference. And, you know, by the time that you, you're a freshman, by the time that you get to a senior, right, that, uh, that you're able to kind of have that long-term focus and look back at how much you've have, you have achieved over that time frame. 
Yeah, I think football is one of those interesting sports, too, where it's like, you know, especially in college, uh, unless you're some freak athlete or, or coming in these five-star recruits, um, you know, generally speaking, you don't really get too much playing time until you get a little bit later. A lot of freshmen may be redshirt or anything like that. So, uh, you know, it's not until your third, fourth, maybe even fifth year to kind of significantly seeing the field a lot, too. So, uh, yeah, I definitely want to yeah hammer home that that long term thinking here, especially you know in kind of the the day to day you know swings that we're seeing in the market today, um, and uh, you know the earlier this week as we're recording here. But um, let's kind of keep it back to your uh, you know your experience and kind of your upbringing. Um, so. Uh, you know, how did you kind of get started in this realm of investing? Did you get uh, first kind of hear about it in college or was it more so, uh, you know, maybe parental influence or something along those lines? You know, I, I would say um, that I'm just like a naturally curious person. So when I was little, I always wanted to find out like who invented something. Right. Um, I'd be like, who invented the bike? you know, and my parents were like, I have no idea. Right. But I, I always wanted to know, like, who was the person behind something? And uh, when I started uh, studying finance uh, in college, I, I, you know, there's just so much that you see, like on TV and in the movies of what finance is like. Um, but I was just like, really curious about like, what that average life would be like. Um, you know, my dad and my brother are both dentists. So something totally different. Um, and so they kind of relied on me to, to say like, Hey, what is, what is happening? Like with the, with the news right now, or like what's happening today. And, uh, I was just a naturally curious person and wanted to find that out. And that's really kind of what led me into finance initially. I gotcha. And so from there, you just kind of, uh, like through studying it and, you know, taking deeper dives into to companies and just that overall curiosity, do you think that it's kind of just like kind of help you naturally just get to where you are is just, you know, that underlying, uh, you know, something that you got in you? Yeah, no, I think my big break really came, uh, you know, when I had my first internship at Goldman Sachs and uh, I didn't have like a really glamorous position, right? I wasn't in investment banking or private equity, right? Uh, I was in operations, um, and so operations, you, you're really viewed as, as like a risk manager or a risk mitigator uh, for all the functions that the bank has to provide on a day-to-day basis. And, uh, you know, with that opportunity, I just decided, you know, to, to own it. And, and even though it wasn't the most glamorous, you know, I tried to make it the best where I was in that current moment. And so... What I found is that my success over the careers has kind of been this uh, this way of running to the problems or running to the fires and being willing to step up and help those, uh, even though they may not be the most glamorous roles initially, because you gain a lot of experience and you become irreplaceable, uh, right, for for where you're working at. And, and so that was my whole mindset was, hey, you know, I'm going to do the things that nobody else wants to do. In doing that, I'm going to gain skills that nobody else is going to have, and that's going to make me valuable and, and have life experiences going on, um, you know, ultimately when I'm doing something that, that maybe I enjoy more or is m- more aligned with my, you know, best skill set. Yeah, it, it 
kind of brings me back to the, the sports analogy here. You know, you got to make sure you do the little things right. Uh, that maybe not ever, maybe not the most glamorous things, especially in football, you know, uh, you know, playing tight end or, or, um, you know, it's one of these other skill positions you, you see the touchdowns and that's what you kind of think of, but you know, maybe it's the blocking or running the right routes or helping, you know, somebody else get open that really can, uh, change the course of the game and, and help your team and help you in. And, uh, and at the end of the day, yeah. that those things aren't necessarily shown up on the stat sheet, but you know, it kind of makes you, like you said, irreplaceable and uh, helps you down the line. Oh yeah, no, so no, absolutely. Absolutely. Like if you're a tight end and, and you can't block, right. Uh, then you're, you're really just like a glorified wide receiver. Um, in finance, like for us now with our firm Tuttle Ventures, right, we analyze hundreds of different companies, right? But not all of them fit into the portfolio. So a lot of them are just coming up to bat, seeing the pitches that are coming down the line, right? Uh, lots of different screens, lots of different tickers, lots of different ideas, lots of different models, lots of different analysis, but then not all of those show up on the scoreboard, right? And so we run a concentrated basket now of high conviction equities and non-correlated assets to the overall market. And so what you see that ultimately lands in the portfolio is you know, our best ideas. But to get to our best ideas, we've probably had a, a hundred, at least 100 strikeouts to be able to get to that, that best idea portfolio that's, that you're looking at today. Yeah, it takes a lot of, uh, you know, it seems like my, my time in investing, it takes a lot of uh, just learning from from your mistakes or, or learning from a lot of other people in the industry and kind of picking the brains of very smart minds in there and, and that have been doing it for a while. Um, but uh, I think, you know, during a time like this where, uh, you know, we're recording here on Wednesday, May 11th, about midday, um, we had a big, big drop on Monday the 9th. Uh, overall in the market. And then we kind of saw it like a little bit even, but we're seeing a, a massive amount of volatility going on right now in the stock market, um, you know, in, in almost every sector. Uh, so how are you kind of uh, like looking with, looking at and, and dealing with um, this massive amount of volatility? And uh, is it kind of uh, changed anything that you're, you're doing so far or change any philosophy that you have as far as uh, your investing strategy? Well, well, Brandon, I'll say it does uh, make you have a little bit of a gut check, right? When you're looking at this fear and greed index that we call the VIX, right? Where we're looking at it at extreme fear levels right now. Um, you know, if, if we're looking at stock price strength on a broad market index basis, right? We're, we're at the, the lows of the lows, uh, you know, where we're having a lot more uh, companies reporting uh, you know, this, this, uh, this lack of conviction in a better future uh, going forward. What, what I would say is that we've, we've been preparing uh, for a, a moment like this from a macroeconomic standpoint. Um, in our portfolio, we're buying really boring companies uh, with high levels of free cash flow and have been, uh, you know, allocating to those positions since around October of last year. Um, we saw some of the writing on the wall in terms of stagflation and an energy run up uh, and a commodity super cycle. And so, uh, you know, the trades that we've been uh, 
having on since the beginning of this year have done pretty well. Uh, you know, the peak for the portfolio, we were up 19 percent. Uh, this was across, you know, commodities, uh, primarily uh, energy uh, allocations, uh, and then also just uh, bellwether boring companies uh, that are generating high levels of free cash flow. And because of that, we've been able to weather the storm somewhat, right? Uh, you know, I, I think ultimately when you're investing something that's somewhat contrarian to the overall market view, things can look a little bit different. Um, but then at the same time, uh, you know, I don't have to make a judgment on, on where the entire market is going. I just have to make uh, judgments on, you know, that basket of, of equities that we hold. Yeah, exactly. So is this kind of, uh, I guess, when you, when you have your clients on the phone and, and everything like that, I feel like this, uh, this is a time you don't really envy uh, the, the investment uh, people because I'm sure you're getting a lot of phone calls and, and people may be worried about it. So how do you kind of, uh, I, I guess, help uh, the average person or maybe your clients or, or somewhat, um, you know, kind of zoom out and, uh, you know, help weather their, uh, you know, maybe their fears or overall just uh, their worries about about the market crashing and everything like that and kind of you know uh, if they're seeing these major news headlines or seeing you know the Dow crashing and other things like that yeah I mean it's it's not easy being an investor right um, and you have to be able to um, have uh, that self-discipline uh, and also know yourself pretty well right um, I, I would say if somebody's really worried about the market, um, that panic usually breeds more panic, right? So uh, if you follow the herd and everybody's panicking, uh, before you know it, you're going to start panicking too. So really focus on the voices that you're listening to. If you're listening to a lot of negativity, a lot of panic, it's just a matter of time before you start to panic as well. Um, you know, I think the second thing is uh, if you don't really know what you own, uh, for me, at least I'm the type of person where if I don't know what I own and it's starting to go down, then I'm like, why am I even holding this? I start asking a lot of questions, right? Cause I'm naturally curious. Um, if, if you have a relationship with an advisor, or if this is a portfolio that you bought for yourself, uh, you know, you should know what, what you're buying before you buy. Right. Uh, so it's a, like a measure twice, uh, cut once kind of rule. And, and so for me, when I'm managing risk, we have, you know, estimations on how much uh, the market could go down or how much our portfolio could go down on any given day. And we create, you know, expectations on both the downside and the upside uh, to be able to do that. And they say that, you know, mostly losses hurt twice as bad as gains do. Right. So uh, making, you know, ten dollars on the upside uh, is, is about the equivalent of losing $5 on the downside. And if, if you don't have that, uh, kind of for, uh, forethought of saying, Hey, you know, I could lose five on the downside to be able to, to make 10 on the upside. Then when you do start losing money, uh, you're going to be a little skittish and, and you're probably going to want to sell out. Gotcha. So really having those, uh, you know, conviction on, um, you know, why you're investing in companies. I think that's, you know, it's, it's what help, has helped me uh, as well, because, you know, when you, you're buying something, whether it's 
you know, going down or, or up, you know, the next day, it's easy to kind of have that initial reaction where you're like, all right, I made the right or the wrong decision very shortly. But, you know, I guess if you believe in the long-term vision and, and the, the company and the products and everything about the company, you know, overall it, uh, you know, eventually the company will be become more valuable if, uh, you know, your, your beliefs are, are correct. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, that's yeah. an exchange. Yeah. I- I, I think you make a really good point. And I also think time is a, is a big saver as well, right? So if I, if I put a bunch of money into the market and the next month it drops 30%, right? I'm going to have a pit in my stomach and I'm going to be feeling bad because I hate losing money, right? Um, but if you've been able to weather the storm uh, to see, uh, you know, the market rebound through some of its uh, previous sell-offs through history and, and zoom out a little bit, uh, you can you can feel better there. And, and then the second is, um, you know, thinking in, in probabilistic terms. And, and what I mean by that is uh, there was a company uh, that we were analyzing uh, before I started Tuttle Ventures called the New Home Company. This was a home builder, really small cap uh, uh, home builder based out of Southern California and Irvine here. And, and the stock was very volatile, but it was also trading about half of its price to book, right? So price to book is financial measure, looks at, uh, you know, everything that they're putting, the company's putting on their balance sheet, right? Their books and saying what that's worth. And then it's taking the stock price and it's comparing that to what's on their books. And they were trading at about half of, of that level. Well, the reason that they were trading at that level was this home builder was, was pre-selling homes. They were selling homes uh, collecting that that initial deposit uh, with the obligation to deliver that home in the future, and so after doing that research, which probably took you know uh, a couple of weeks to be able to figure out that fundamental reason why they were trading at such a deep discounted valuation, we were able to make a probabilistic estimate, uh, you know, or or for lack of a better word, a bet on what we think the future of that company's uh, value is going to be. And and our thought was that homes were still going to be in demand, uh, that they were going to have strong management that was able to to fulfill that demand that they've already pre-sold. And we thought, hey, in the future, uh, this company is going to be worth more. And and so, uh, you know, later on down the road, new home company actually got bought out, taken private, for about $14 a share when our initial, uh, you know, buy-in on the, on the stock was around $3. And so, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a big win story. Those don't always happen, but when you use that kind of way to analyze a company, initiate a position, have a, have a probabilistic outcome way of thinking about what the upside potential is, uh, then it, it creates some solace when, when you see, you know, five or 10% price fluctuations, uh, on any given day. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of, uh, price fluctuations that are almost out of the control of, the the, you know, over our underlying business at this point. Um, you know, I think, uh, we recently had the fed raise interest rates by 50 basis points, and then today, actually earlier this morning, um, we announced the the Fed announced the uh, CPI print for the month of um, for the month of April, and when it came out to about eight point three percent, which was uh, above expectations. So, 
Um, I think that, uh, you know, the market kind of reacts a lot to these, um, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, some of these metrics, but, um, as far as, uh, I guess CPI goes, are you, um, one that kind of, uh, is somewhat of a believer or do you kind of track, uh, these CPI prints or, or kind of, uh, hold the, any weight towards this or, um, you know, are you just kind of, uh, looking at, as you said, you know, very long term? So, uh, in the short term, the CPI isn't as, as important. Oh, no, this is uh, no, no, Brandon, this is, this is very important. Um, I think the first thing is uh, your comment on interest rates, right? So it, interest rates are the gravity uh, around all financial markets. So as interest rates rise, uh, the price of money uh, increases, right? So you need to make sure that you're uh, allocating your capital efficient, efficiently, right? If you have a tighter budget, you're going to be questioning, hey, is that purchase really worth it? Or, you know, can I do without? So uh, so that's kind of the first thing is, is interest rates really do matter. Uh, and and rising interest rates are, are typically done to maintain st- price stability, right? And maintain full employment. And so CPI uh, has, has a really big impact. The, uh, the CPI uh, that we're seeing now, you know, we, we could kind of have seen that coming with uh, just the flush of free money from from the Fed monetary policy. And for us, what we like are we like companies similar to what succeeded back in the 1970s, right? So I took the period of the 1970s and said, okay, what was working in the 1970s when we had inflation at these levels back then? And they were hiking into into a recession, right? Uh, The companies that worked well then uh, were energy, and also companies that had these verticals, right? This was really popular back in the 1970s was these vertical cost structures of companies to be able to own a process from start to finish. And so if you think about a vertically integrated company, uh, you can use, for example, a lemonade stand. A lemonade stand, if you're vertically integrated, you're not going and buying the lemons from the store and then buying the pitcher from, uh, you know, the, the store. And then that's how you come up with your materials to have your lemonade stand. If you're vertically integrated, you have the, the, the lemonade trees or the lemon trees at your house already, right? And you're picking the lemons from your own tree and you're using a pitcher that you have within your own house. And so you're able to have lower costs because you're you're delivering uh, you know things from the ground all the way to, to to selling that cup of lemonade, and when you can control more of the cost with a vertically integrated uh, corporate structure, rather than this like really broad, wide, global, um, outsourced structure uh, or horizontal structure, uh, you're able to to control a lot more of those costs uh, during an inflationary environment. So those are things we like within companies that we invest. I got you. And that makes sense. Um, so when, when it comes to energy, uh, you know, I guess the overall CPI print is kind of at just that one number, right? The 8.3%. But they also publish, you know, a little bit deeper of a breakdown. Um, so, you know, just reading off some of these numbers that they have from, from year over year, they go, you know, into food, energy, uh, commodities, used cars, all that kind of things. But 
you know, if you really look into the energy sector, you know, energy's up 30% uh, just overall, energy commodities up 44.7%, gasoline up 43.6%, fuel and oil up 80%. Um, so it seems like, you know, a lot of these energy services are up, you know, drastically uh, compared to last year, not just that 8.3 number. So um, I guess this is kind of like a two-part question is, uh, you know, how much weight do you hold into that one CPI number? And uh, when you're looking at, uh, you know, more so of these energy companies, do you take into account, uh, you know, how much that they're reporting uh, it's going up? Or do you kind of like seeing that, uh, you know, these energy companies are, you know, the, uh, everything's getting kind of more expensive because in the end of the day, that means, you know, more profit for uh, these energy companies that you'd be investing in? Um, well, kind of two parts. Sorry, I, I didn't hear the, the full question there. Um, but but I would say that uh, the the first point, right, is is that we need to remember when oil went negative, right? Uh, and when oil companies were down 60%, uh, you know, this wasn't too long ago. This was about two years ago. There was uh, that supply and demand imbalance for a commodity that's that's used by most Americans every day if if you're driving in a car, right? Um, and so the uh, the lack of investment in uh, energy uh, has led to imbalances with significant price increases. Uh, on top of, you know, this, this uh, environment where we're just flooding the market with free money. So we had a, a lack of initial investment uh, to commit to these energy providers that have been doing this for the past 150 years. Um, so that's kind of the first point. And then I'd say the, the second point uh, related, you know, with energy is, is that going forward, I think we need to be able to recognize that we can't have, uh, you know, these guardrails in place uh, that stifle innovation or, or stifle uh, the capital that is flowing to reduce costs. Because if you do that, it just exacerbates the problem, right? Let's let's come to the table. Uh, the U.S. now is now a, a net exporter of oil. Right. And we've worked hard since the 1970s to be able to do that. And uh, now with the price of oil going up as a net exporter of oil, the U.S. should be in a better position. It was now than uh, back in the 1970s when we were having you know, lines of cars and you could only get your gas uh, you know, on certain days of the week based on your license plate number. Gotcha. Well, that all makes sense too. Um, so, uh, you know, we we're we're kind of talking a little bit more of the the overall macro environment, and then kind of diving in a little bit into you know the underlying businesses, uh, and that kind of brings me to another another question I have for you. So, uh, three aces at not a big deal. One one one. Uh, I have I co-host my Twitter Spaces uh, you know, every Tuesday with him. Uh, he's been hammering ever since I, you know, run into him about the six stages of the business cycle. So for those who aren't familiar, it's, uh, you know, the first stage is kind of seeing bonds uh, decrease. And then, you know, we're kind of in stage two is more so uh, of a recovery. You see the recession start to hit, stocks are going down. And then stage three, 
um, you know, commodities start to turn up. And then stage four, bonds start to turn down again. And then uh, stage five, stocks, uh, although they're, they're kind of reaching their peak and, and turning down. And then the last stage, you see, um, you know, the commodities start to turn down. So do you, uh, you know, take a dive into where you think we are in the overall business cycle, as well as kind of looking a little bit deeper into the macro when you're analyzing a lot of these companies? Yeah. Um, you know, Brandon, I'm not familiar with, with that cycle you mentioned in particular. Um, but, uh, what, what we always do is we're always trying to think about, uh, where things are going to be not right now, but where things could be six months from now. And so as an investor, we're, we're investing for the future. I, I don't get paid, you know, to, to make money on day trading, right. I'm not, I'm not looking at minute to minute charts. And so because of that, understanding, you know, where we are now uh, on a map, if you think about a map, right. And you say uh, most maps uh, will say, okay, you are here and they got a big star around it. And then there's an area that you want to go to in the future. Um, a lot of people in the macroeconomic environment argue about where we are right here, right? They spend all this time, all this energy saying, no, we're, we're here now because this is what bonds are doing or no, we're here now because this is what energy is doing. For me, I'm trying to think, okay, let's take the information that we have now and let's extrapolate it out six months into the future. Do you think six months from now, energy is, is going to be, uh, energy demand is, is still going to be present and there could be some supply and demand imbalances as companies plan out their, their forecasting for the future? Uh, certainly, right? Uh, in terms of bonds, do you think people six months from now are going to just forget about the, the double digit decline that they've had in bonds uh, and, and not really view it as a safe haven going forward? Probably not, right? Um, and, and because of that, over that landscape of time of saying, okay, we could be here, we could be there, we could be there, but, but where are we going going forward? And that's where, you know, as, as you look at a comparative time frame in the 1970s, how did they emerge out of that period of the 1970s to the prosperity in the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s? Well, there was a, a revolution in energy, and, and there was a change in, in the banking system, right? Uh, removing the gold standard. Those were two like critical events that happened over that time frame for them to be able to move from we are here into a, a, a prosperous future. Exactly. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I totally, you know, agree with your point about, you know, zooming out and, and we do kind of analyze where we are, you know, at the minute, um, at, le at least a lot of times, I, I'm still trying to figure out, you know, where we are, uh, to kind of help, I guess, forecast where, where things are going to go. But, uh, you know, like you said, I think that having the longer term outlook definitely has, has helped me in, uh, in a time like this, where, where it seems like everything's just going up and down, up and down by the day, um, but uh, yeah, previously, I, I've heard you in a, uh, you know, another podcast, I believe it was the What the Finance podcast, where you kind of went into three sectors uh, that you saw 
um, you know, kind of succeeding. Um, so I don't know if you remember those three sectors exactly, but I kind of wanted to get into your thoughts on maybe the cybersecurity um, sector and how you're, you kind of see where that's going. And if you still, uh, I think that that podcast was maybe in uh, 2011, so maybe a, about a year ago, but if you're still kind of bullish on that sector and if you think, you know, the digital age is still kind of moving forward. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I think cybersecurity is of utmost importance uh, across the board, and it has real world impact now uh, as uh, managers are in the boardroom talking about, you know, how can we protect uh, our data and, and how can we protect our employees in a work from home environment? So we've been obsessed with cybersecurity uh, as of late for the last couple of months. Um, it's very hard to, to price these correctly. Um, I've talked on the public and private side with different companies that are doing a lot of different innovative things. Um, most companies that want to protect for cybersecurity want to just write one check and give it to, to some uh, you know, well-deserving uh, service provider and then call it a day. Right. Um, but but things aren't really structured like that. Uh, the 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 way that cybersecurity is set up now is you can get attacked from so many different angles um, that it really has to be like embedded in your company culture and, 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 and company structure. And what I mean by that is the companies that have uh, these, you know, one time uh, cybersecurity solutions can usually just be viewed as like a cost uh, to the business and, and have a limited or finite value that they ha have in the long run. But think about the companies that are revolutionizing the infrastructure of cybersecurity uh, that I think would be embedded in all aspects of the business model. So when you think about Internet of Things, who's doing, uh, you know, cybersecurity related to the Internet of Things and, and how can that be embedded with every aspect of a business's, uh, you know, day to day operations uh, is where I think the most money can be made uh, going forward. And, and we like investing with companies that have high potential upside. Yeah, that's great. And uh, yeah, I mean, you definitely want to find those ones in the with the, the most upside for sure. Um, so how do you go about finding, uh, you know, these these said companies? Do you uh, more so look at sectors first and kind of, uh, you know, think like like I said, brought up cybersecurity is a big sector that you guys are focusing on. Do you you know go from cybersecurity and then look into companies doing some some good things and some encouraging things or do you more so? Uh, I guess, cast a little bit of a wider net and just look at more so, you know, br broader uh, companies that you think might be successful based on, you know, various factors, whether it's financials or CEOs or other things like that. Um, yeah. So so for us, we take a look at it from a geopolitical lens. So I'm a big fan of uh, George uh, Friedman. Um, he's wrote a, a couple of books um, uh, related to, to geopolitics. And, and what that means uh, in relation to different companies and different countries, uh, how they interact and, uh, and what that implies for their profits going forward. Um, so we take a, a geopolitical lens and say, okay, where are the bi biggest risks out there in the world right now? 
Um, and, and so we take a playbook out of George Friedman to be able to form kind of that picture, right? And then uh, the second is uh, we take a playbook out of uh, Joshua Steinman. So I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he was the national securities advisor for cybersecurity under President Trump. And, uh, and he's working on some cybersecurity aspects on the private side related to infrastructure. Um, and so the, the merging of those two, a, a geopolitical perspective, and then uh, talking to people that are way smarter than me that have been doing this for a really long time and relying on that, their expertise kind of helped build this thesis for us uh, going forward. So I'll give you a concrete example because I'm talking in very big abstracts. Um, but there's a company we really like called Maxar Technologies. And, uh, you know, you can do some your own research on, on the company, but essentially uh, it's a it's a satellite company that's. Uh, has contracts with the U.S. government, but also sells to commercial providers as well that are able to take, you know, views from space uh, anywhere in the world uh, at very high resolutions and and connect that data to, to what you need for your business. And they got a lot of free publicity during the war in Ukraine uh, when all of their satellite images were plastered all over CNN and, and, and the like. Um, but that's, uh, you know, an, a fully integrated cybersecurity uh, company, in my view, as uh, wars and as conflicts uh, demand, you know, a, a new evolution of, of war going forward that also includes uh, space. And, and so that is uh, that's one of the names that we hold in our portfolio. Uh, you know, so that makes me a little bit biased. Um, but that kind of maybe gives you a little bit better concrete example of what I mean when I'm, when I'm talking about this lens that we're, we're viewing cybersecurity from in terms of geopolitics and, and also infrastructure. Gotcha. Now, um, maybe for a little bit of a, a tougher question. So, um, you know, I think it's easy when you get these companies to kind of you know, more so fall in love with them, uh, you know, figure out, you know, what you really like about it. But how do you determine when your your thesis has changed on a company, maybe uh, to necessarily get out of a position or get out of a full sector? Um, so, you know, whether something happens or, you know, something changes quickly, uh, you know, how do you kind of go about that, I guess, mental exercise to constantly you know, go through and evaluate your thesis? Yeah. So, um, so going back to, to, to Maxer for a second. So, so, um, so all of our portfolio companies, we've identified like the biggest risks that could be applied to those companies. And then we estimate the probabilities of those happening. Right. And, and we say, okay, if, if these happen, then we're more likely to sell because this will impact future earnings or long-term earnings. Um, as for example, one of those with Maxer Technologies, the satellite company, a big question that we had uh, is whether they're going to delay their next uh, worldwide legion um, uh, satellite launch, right? So they had this launch that was planned in, in 2021, then it got pushed to, to early uh, May of, of 2022 or spring of 2022. And now they're saying that they're uh, pushing it now to the fall of 2022 before they put these new satellites up. And so we knew that that was a risk going into to buying into the company. Uh, and we estimate that uh, pushing that launch date is going to add another 50 million 
uh, in costs to, to their balance sheet, right? And so this is all like really uh, fundamental stuff. I'm, I'm at heart a fundamental guy. I'm a, I'm a CFA, a chartered financial analyst. I love dealing into the financials of these companies. And what we saw was, okay, they're going to take another $50 million uh, hit uh, on their bottom line. But then they also have uh, over a billion dollars in backfilled orders for uh, satellite uh, data um, from various different companies. And so uh, they still have like a long list of potential customers uh, that they can fulfill if they execute well. And, and we believe uh, that management has, uh, has, the, has the track record and also the capability to be able to do that. And so even though we had that bad news happen uh, that we had modeled out, we kind of know the downside risks of it. And then we're taking this educated guess that we think in the future, things for this company are going to be better uh, than, than, um, than they are right now. Gotcha. So it seems like you kind of look at more of, uh, you know, financials and maybe some some metrics too, and, and take a dive into the numbers, but, you know, also taking into account some of the fundamentals and, you know, the, just the underlying business and, and the products and services that, that each company offers before. I know, Brandon, I wish I had like a, like a, like a magic wand. And I could say, if you just did these three things, you know, you'd never pick a losing company. Right. But, but I've worked really hard in establishing, you know, a, a, a process of way of being able to look at these companies, being very disciplined, uh, you know, learning from some of the best in the industry and just um, and studying a lot. And that doesn't mean that that I'm, you know, immune of, of making bad choices as well. But for me, I'd rather make a bad choice and know why I made that bad choice and understand that, hey, you know, this time the odds just didn't work in my favor uh, rather than, you know, relying on on somebody else and, and just taking, you know, a, a random guess. And if it doesn't work out, uh, you know, not really knowing why. And so that curiosity and, and wanting to understand how things work and how they, they come together is really what really motivates me going forward with, with managing investment portfolios. Yeah, I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, whether no matter how you, you analyze it, you're, you're going to pick winners or lo- and losers, you know, when the market's going to maybe not make sense at all times. And maybe it will at other times and uh, you, you just make a bad choice. So I think, you know, the biggest point that I that I'm taking away from what you're saying there is at the end of the day, learning from your mistakes is the biggest lesson that you could have. You kind of going back and learning why, uh, you know, maybe necessarily company X was a loser, so to speak, or, or it didn't work out as well as company Y, where you were kind of picking between the two um, and just, you know, taking a step back and, and learning and recognizing, you know, this is why, you know, company Y was more successful than company X. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's uh, all to to make yourself a better investor. And I think, uh, you know, that's my biggest takeaway. You can talk about, you know, the, the different ways maybe, you know, to, to invest and whatnot um, and kind of analyze companies. And I think, you know, everybody's got their own kind of uh, cup of tea for it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, overall it sounds like your strategy has been doing well for you guys so far. And uh, yeah, so c- congratulations one on the ex- success and, and thanks for taking a dive into how you, you know, really dive into these companies and, t- and analyze them. 
Absolutely, Brandon. And uh, I really appreciate, uh, you know, having the time here. I think what you're doing now, talking to people, uh, you know, learning for yourself, setting up these spaces, right? Like that's, that's a, that's a big, uh, a big feather in your cap, right? Seeking to understand and, uh, and knowing, uh, you know, where, where things are, are going is, is, uh, is a difficult task, right? So nobody's perfect and, and things have worked out now and, and we're excited about the company's future here at Tuttle Ventures. Um, so uh, if you're not already subscribed to the newsletter, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's where I'll put most of these big brain dumps uh, with actionable market insights for you to be able to cut through the noise. So Tuttle Ventures newsletter, if, if you want to check out more. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'll definitely do that for sure. And then um, one last question before I let you go. So we obviously met in a, in a Twitter space um, and, uh, you know, you have a pretty good following on your, on your Twitter. So feel free to, to plug your handle here before you get into it. But, um, you know, how do you, uh, view financial Twitter in these spread of ideas? Um, and then uh, I'll ask you one follow-up question after you kind of uh, answer that one. Oh yeah, no. Um, so I'm a registered investment advisor in the state of California, right? So, I have compliance measures uh, that I have to navigate through on social media uh, to be able to, to make sure that I'm not, you know, guaranteeing returns or, or not giving a fa fair and balanced approach and not making blanket recommendations for people. Right. Um, but there's, there's a lot of good in social media and there's a lot of bad. I, I have found so much good uh, from Twitter. Uh, you know, I've been on there for at least 11 years. Uh, I've been talking about, you know, these these uh, esoteric financial matters on Twitter for a long time. They're only now starting to get popular, which is great. Um, Pre-COVID, we would have these, uh, quote unquote, FinTwit meetups where it was probably, you know, 10 to 20 just uh, just characters from Twitter that would come together and meet. And and from there, I was able to meet with a lot of people that I wouldn't have access to had I not otherwise been on Twitter. And so for me, uh, as somebody that's passionate about finance, that somebody that's in the industry, uh, and then somebody that has to navigate it uh, from a professional standpoint, I, I take Twitter to be a, a fun place uh, and, uh, and a place where I learn a lot and, and something that you know, connects people from all over the world. So I love it um, and, uh, and happy to be able to have that chance to, to talk to people from, from anywhere, pretty much about anything. So I'm, I'm excited about the future of Twitter and, and glad that, uh, that it's been rewarding for me and my business. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great to hear. So, um, you know, one thing that I really like about uh, Twitter and, and FinTwit is just like you're saying, there's a lot of uh, spread of ideas and, and, you know, the ability to learn a lot of, of stuff. So um, how do you, uh, I guess, filter through a lot of the uh, things that you hear on Twitter, whether it's Twitter spaces or threads or, or things like that, uh, to, to determine if it's, uh, you know, maybe good information or if, uh, you know, the thesis on a company is something that you agree with. Um, yeah. So how do you kind of, how have you kind of created your own personal filter on like good and bad information? Yeah, oh, that's a good question. I have lists um, that I keep track of. So I have lists of like different, uh, different uh, experts or, or niche, uh, you know, niche uh, 
experts in different areas. So I've, I've really kind of narrowed down who I listen to for something specifically based on lists. I'm a big proponent of that. Um, the, the second is, um, you know, I have like these filters that I use, my search filters. There's a big thread I did on it, um, how you can kind of control who you're viewing uh, from your timeline, which has been huge for me. And then, um, you know, I think the, the, the other point is just to realize that Twitter is such a small sample size of the overall population, right? That maybe there's a lot of idea generation from Twitter, um, but there's still a, a whole host of, of market participants and just regular people, right, that aren't on Twitter. And so you have to be able to uh, balance what people are saying on Twitter with what's actually happening in the real world. And if those two aren't, aren't really aligning, that's like my first kind of uh, call on, on how to sniff out BS. Uh, you know, the second is I can rely on, you know, a research team and analysts uh, to be able to take maybe an idea and, and see if it has merit um, and, uh, and to be able to run and, and test it through. And then just the fact that I've been on the platform for so long, I've met, some, you know, a lot of these people in person. Uh, or, you know, I've, I've talked to them in DMs and then started talking to them, you know, over the phone and things. And so develop a relationship of kind of who you should talk to and uh, for the right information and, and who you shouldn't uh, talk to. And, and I think that just takes time. Gotcha. Well, Darren, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I think the audience is going to really love this one as well. Uh, so why don't you tell everybody where they can find you, maybe how they can uh, contact you for um, uh, maybe some investment stuff or, or whatnot. So uh, yeah, go ahead and plug all your stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I already plugged the newsletter, right? Um, and then I'm on uh, Twitter at, uh, at Darren, D-A-R-I-N underscore T-8-0. So Darren T-8-0. Uh, and then you can always visit my website, uh, www.tuttleventures.com, uh, you know, on there, uh, post some of the research, uh, you know, and also you can take a look at the firm. So awesome stuff. Well, everybody, you should go check them out and give them a follow on Twitter. Darren, thank you so much for your time today. As no, it's very valuable and, uh, yeah, have a great rest of your week. All right. For sure, Brandon. Hey, appreciate the time.